Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. The story is told of a farmhand who had worked for a married couple for several years. And as time went on, this couple, they got older. They couldn't do as much as they could in the past. And so the farm began to look a little bit run down. It began to look a little shabby. The paint on the barn was starting to peel. The fences, they had holes in them. Some of the posts needed replacing. The gravel road coming into this farm had potholes in it. And the shingles on top of the farmhouse were beaten and weathered. They needed to be replaced. Now they had a hired guy, a farmhand, who saw this. But he watched the farm slowly fall apart. And as he made his way to milk the cows each day, he thought to himself, what is it to me? Not my farm. Well, then one day the farmer and his wife asked him to come for dinner. They told him how much he had meant to them. And then the farmer explained to him with no children to inherit the farm, they had come to a decision that when they died, the farm was going to be his. It was now his inheritance. Well, the next day, the farmhand was walking to the barn, and he noticed how weathered it had become. And within a few days, he had painted that barn, and then he moved on to repairing the fence. And just a few weeks later, he was putting a new roof up on the farmhouse. And later that summer, he added new gravel to the road. Now, why would he do this? What made the difference in his attitude? You see, he was now an heir. The couple was now treating him as a son. And because of this, he began to treat the farm a little bit different than he had ever before. And this simple difference describes the two attitudes that we have in the church of Jesus Christ today. What is it to me or the mature believer grown up in Christ who says, I have an inheritance with Jesus Christ in God himself, and this should change how we live. This is the point that Paul takes us to in Galatians chapter 4. God sees us as adopted into his family. And the future that we have together with Christ, it should make us want to invest our lives into the coming kingdom of God. God has taken us into his family, so live like it. Instead of acting like little children, Paul is saying, grow up in your faith and start living up to the position of who Jesus Christ has made you to be. Sons and daughters of the King of Kings, so reflect it. Kids look forward to growing up because when you become an adult, there's freedom. There's greater freedom with fewer restrictions when you're an adult. But if you see someone who is 30 or 40 years old still acting like a young child, in your mind you know that there's a problem. If you see them acting like a little child, then you know that they need to grow up. But it's even worse, I would say, in the church. 
Because for some reason, a lot of Christians today, they just don't see it. They don't recognize the clear teaching of Scripture that God considers us already to be his adult children. And so they continue to live like little children, looking to follow rules, looking to follow a list of do's and don'ts to live the Christian life. But Christians, you cannot live according to the laws of God, so quit acting like children. Find your way to Galatians 4, where the Apostle Paul invites the church of Jesus Christ to grow up in their faith. Paul actually begins in verse 1 by saying, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Paul is saying a child is like a slave. He had to follow the rules of the home because someone else is managing his life. He cannot manage his own estate. Even though by right of birth he owns the whole estate, he cannot make his own decisions. Now, under the Roman laws which the Galatians lived, at age 14, an heir was placed under the authority of a tutor or a guardian. But even at age 14, when the boy came of age, he was still not free to do whatever he wanted. He was still under the control of a curator or a steward of an estate until he was 25. Only then did he receive his full inheritance. Guardians and stewards train the child to become an adult until the time appointed by the father, until the time established by the father. For a son to enter into the rights and privilege in the inheritance that he had as an adult son. Paul is saying for almost 1,500 years, from the time of Moses until the time of Christ, God's people were like little children in his eyes, living like they were slaves or children, living under the guardianship of the Mosaic law. See, Paul is letting the Christians know that anyone living underneath the law is spiritually immature. Because the Hebrew people had moved on from that childlike relationship they had with God under the law. Under God's grace, they had become adults, and it was time. It was time to put off the childish things. So watch the application in verse 3. He says, even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Paul is writing as a Jew, and he's reviewing the history of God interacting with Israel. And he's saying for 15 centuries, that's a long time, 15 centuries Israel had been in kindergarten and then in grade school, in bondage to the ABCs of the world so that they would be ready when Christ would come. Then they would get the full revelation of God in the person of Jesus the Christ. Paul's saying, it's like we were in kindergarten, where we had to get permission just to go to the bathroom. Do you remember that? We couldn't make our own decisions because instead the law did all of that. And if you've ever read the Mosaic laws, then you know that the law actually even included this, what to eat and where at times to go to the bathroom. You see, the law dictated the lives of the people of Israel because just like little children, the people didn't know how to make good decisions. God was interacting with the people of Israel like he had never done before. But the nation, the people, weren't mature enough to handle the richness of God working in their lives. So they needed rules. They needed those rules to follow because otherwise, just like little children, they might let their cravings lead them astray. 
Now, cravings, oh, they can be a powerful thing, especially when it comes to fast food. Some of us in this room have admitted, Amy, we have admitted in times past uh, driving a long distance just to satisfy our cravings for fast food. We had a great discussion about how far you will drive for a Taco John's when you're in the lower 48. Well, an eight-year-old Ohio boy had this problem. He had a craving for a cheeseburger. And when you're craving a cheeseburger, it's a problem. But his parents had already gone to bed. And this is a modern age we live in, Mom. He, he had a problem. So what he did is he went and got out YouTube. And he decided that YouTube would teach him how to drive a car. And after watching YouTube for just a couple of minutes, he put his four-year-old sister in his dad's van so they could go get their fix. And then he took his little sister with him and headed to the closest McDonald's. Give him some credit. He made it through four intersections without crashing. Before getting to a McDonald's drive-thru about one and a half miles from their house. Now the employees thought this had to be a prank when you see two little kids in the drive-thru, but once they figured it out, they called the police, and when it was explained to this boy that what he had done was wrong, he cried, he burst into tears. He knew he had done something wrong at that point, but hey, these kids got what they came for while waiting for grandparents to pick them up. Yes, they were allowed to eat those cheeseburgers. <laughs> this is why, wouldn't it be so sad if they went through all that and they didn't get their cheeseburgers? But this is why children need rules, because we have powerful, powerful cravings and left unrestrained. We will chase them. And this is what God did. This is what I want you to think of when you think of the Mosaic Law. This is what God did for his people by giving them the law. But now that Jesus Christ has come, God wants you to start behaving like adults. You see, legalism is not a step forward. It's a step backward into childhood. The man who sits in the library recalling the ABCs instead of reading the great literature that's around him is showing that he is immature and ignorant. Rules are not the path forward to maturity. Pick up our text with verse 4. Paul says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Listen to what God did for his people. When the time had fully come, on a day which he had set, God sent his son to redeem you as an adult son. The fullness of time came when the Greek language dominated the landscape of the Mediterranean world. A precise and common language easing the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fullness of time came when the Roman Empire united the world under one government, when they built a remarkable system of roads that are still with us, easing the path of the gospel. The Roman peace gave a small, small window of time where the world was without wars. There was peace. The fullness of time came when the Jewish synagogues were spread throughout the empire, giving access to the Old Testament scriptures and the hope of a coming Messiah. But more than any of these things, and hear me, the fullness of time had come when God the Father said the time was ready. The perfect time for his son to be born and die for our sins. God sent forth his son, just as he said he would all the way back in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. 
The birth of Christ at Bethlehem was not an accident. It was an appointment by God the Father. God sent forth his Son. And implicit in this text is the very idea of the pre-existence of Christ, that Christ departed heaven. Christ came down from heaven. The Son came to set us free from the law. Born of a woman, the Son of God, He came as a man. Born under the law, just like all of Israel up until that point. But He kept the law perfectly. Why? Because He is perfect. The Son came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Just as a Roman father would set the date for his son to reach maturity and attain his freedom, God the Father had set the date when he would send forth his son to free the people from the law, to become his children. God the Son put himself under the law for us. He lived it out perfectly. He fulfilled the law for us by taking its curse upon himself. And Israel was liberated from the law. And so it should be obvious to the Gentiles reading this that not even Israel was obligated to keep that law. So why, oh why, oh why would a Gentile convert to Christ try to put themselves under the law? And then he says that we might receive the adoption as sons. God has granted you the right of being his son or his daughter. He considers you responsible enough to make your own decisions. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Why is that true? Because he put his spirit in you, believer in Christ, and he gave you his word to guide each step. You don't need rules. You need to grow up and learn to walk by grace, by faith, trusting God every step of the way because we have learned to obey from the heart. A little girl asked her mother where she had come from, and the mother was a Christian. So she told her daughter, well, God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they became the parents of the human race. But then this little girl went and asked her father the same question. Her father was an unbeliever. So he told her that we all come from monkeys who evolved into human beings. Now the little girl was confused. So she went back to her mom and said, hey, mom, you said that God created us. And daddy says that we came from monkeys. How can you both be right? And the mother just looked at the little girl and said, well, that's easy. I told you about my side of the family and he told you about his. There is a bit of truth there. Unbelievers and Christians do belong to different families, don't we? No one's from monkeys. That's just a lie from the pits of hell. Let's get that out of the way. But we do come from different families. Notice at the end of verse 5, Paul is talking about adoption as sons, meaning that as believers, we have been placed into a different family, the family of God. In the Roman world, if you had money but no children, you could just adopt someone. The age of the adopted son did not matter. This is actually how Nero, who's heard of Nero? He was a pretty wicked emperor, right? This is how he became the emperor of Rome. Claudius had no heir to his throne, so he simply chose to adopt Nero. When an adoption took place, the adopted son lost all of his rights in his previous family, and his natural father had no rights over him. And in the new family, the adopted son gained the same rights as that of his new family. His previous life record included any debts was wiped out, it was done away with. He began a new life with a new name, new rights, new status. 
So how do we apply this teaching of adoption into our lives? Well, I would say that the Bible is quite clear that every unbeliever does have a spiritual father. Ephesians 2, 3, it teaches that unbelievers by their very nature are children of wrath. They have a spiritual father, the devil himself. But when a person receives Jesus Christ, he is born into a new family with a new father. And so here's what this means. This is how we apply this. The father we once had, Satan himself, he has lost all of his rights over the believer in Christ. We have no obligation to obey him. Adoption means that we have rights in a new family. We share an inheritance in the family of Christ. Adoption means the record of our life with its debt of sin has been completely done away with, wiped away. And adoption means we have begun a brand new life in a new family right here as new creations in Christ. Jesus is the only begotten son, but we are God's adopted sons. I hope you enjoy that truth. Celebrate that truth. And because of this, we have moved on into a new family because now we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit as our protector, our teacher, our guide, our counselor, and our friend. Now, according to the Roman adoption ceremony, a child can never have the privilege of calling someone his father until he was placed as a son. Look at verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, notice that, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Take these verses home with you. Take these two verses home and apply them and read them and study them. Apply them to your life. God sent his spirit to remind you that you are his child. The spirit of God whispers this in our hearts. See, if you belong to Jesus Christ this morning, you know this to be true. This is the inner testimony given to us by the Spirit of God, who assures the believer of his position in the family of God. God has sent into the hearts of all believers the Spirit of his Son. And the Spirit of God within us cries, Abba, Father. Abba is just simply the Aramaic word for Father. And this expression, it was used back in the first century by the first Christians to show that intimate feeling of sonship experienced by all Christians, all believers, as they recognize the reality of their new position in Jesus Christ. Abba, Father, shows the Spirit's cry from the heart of the believer and the intimacy that we can now have with Christ instead of those cold, hard, legalistic rules of religion. Meaning this, we can now approach God because we belong to his family. You know, never once in the Old Testament does a person address God as father. Never once in the Old Testament. Not until we get to the New Testament do you see this as possible. Not until we see the words of Jesus in the New Testament where he did it more than 20 times. See, Paul is shifting here in the text, and he's addressing Gentile believers, letting them know of their adoption in Jesus Christ, letting them know of the privilege that we have to be adopted as sons of God, that they are no longer a slave but a son and an heir of God through Jesus Christ. Praise God. Notice this careful wording, heir of God through Christ. Every believer is an heir of God. Every born-again Christian is a believer, and they are an heir of God. 
This is an unconditional promise here that we have rights as children of God. But this is different from being an heir of the kingdom of God. There's a difference in the word of God. Let me say it like this. We become children of God by faith. John 1:12 teaches but as many as received him, this is a very important verse. You want to change your life, memorize this verse. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God, to those who believe in his name. And as a child of God, there's an inheritance in heaven that can never fade. Why do we know that? Well, 1 Peter 1, 4, it teaches us that we have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This is the inheritance that Paul has in mind in Galatians chapter 4. But scripture actually speaks of another inheritance, which is the reward for the faithful believer in Christ. And a lot of people miss this today. Notice the teaching of Romans 8.17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and, notice, joint heirs with Christ if we indeed suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Heirs of God, unconditional promise, and joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him, live for him. You see, in the earthly kingdom of Christ, every believer in Christ will be there. But Luke 19 shows us that there's going to be different positions of responsibility given for the faithful believers. This is actually the teaching of 2 Timothy 2.12, a verse that is always, always ripped out of context today. It says simply this, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. 2 Timothy 2.12 is not about eternal salvation and proving whether you're a true believer or not. It cannot be from the grammar. The context is all about the right to reign with Christ, and Paul had just stated in chapter 1 of the letter that he was certain about his salvation. He'd already said back in chapter 1, For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. So then why would he include himself here in chapter 2 by saying, if we endure? See, Paul knew he would endure to eternal salvation. He knew that. Paul already said in chapter 1, he was certain of his eternal security in Jesus Christ. Paul was now moving on to talk about being willing to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is just simply saying, if we deny Christ now, he'll deny us the right to rule and reign with him in the future. But we are still secure in our salvation, still secure in Christ. And even if we are weak in our faith, or as Paul says it like this, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. See, even if our faith is weak, even if our faith is weak, even if we forget or fail to trust Christ when one of those storms in life hits us, God is still faithful because why? We're part of his family. We're a part of his family, and God cannot deny himself. And that is the subject back in Galatians chapter 4. Being a part of the family of God. God the Father, he not only sent his son, but he says here that he also sent us his spirit. Spirit of God is sent to every believer because we are his sons. No son or daughter today lacks the spirit of God. The Galatian believers wanted to become servants or slaves of the law, but God has accepted us as his sons. So why would you want to go back to being a slave to the law when God has already made you a son? 
You know, the law, if you think of the Old Testament Mosaic law, it could never put the nature of God into a person. The law could never adopt you and make you a son. A son has a father, but a servant doesn't. A servant has a master. A son obeys out of love, but a servant obeys out of fear. And the Spirit works in the heart of the believer now to increase his love for God, which is why chapter 5 is going to tell us that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. See, when you see Christians with a lack of love for God and for one another, Scripture's telling us that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it's because they're trying to live by the law instead of by love and by grace. The adopted Son of God possesses all the riches of his grace in Christ. And the Holy Spirit has brought us into this intimate, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. We can approach God at any time. Think of that amazing truth. We can approach God at any time knowing that He'll always hear us and He'll always care for us. He sent the Son to us. That's His love. He sent the Spirit of God to us. You see, somewhere in your life, believer, in the middle of your questions and your doubt and your anger, your hopelessness, maybe your fear, and in the middle of your sin, Jesus came. The Spirit of God now lives in you. And that means security in God. Now he is teaching us that being a son, a daughter, a child of God means we are no longer a slave to the standards we cannot keep. So here's where it means. It means I'm not a slave anymore to shame and guilt. I'm not a slave to rules and regulations. I'm not a slave to the poor decisions and slow spiritual growth I might have had in my past. I'm not a slave to doubt and fear. I'm not a slave to trying to meet certain standards. And I'm not a slave to the identities that other people try to put on me. I'm not a slave to expectations because instead I look to the Father running toward Him instead of away from Him, finding perfect forgiveness in Christ, finding His strength to live for Him. Let that assurance strengthen you. Let that assurance strengthen you because you, Christian, are part of the family of God. God is not promising better life circumstances. Instead, He's promising a far better life, a life lived in His Son. Addressing the Gentiles in these churches, he tells them in our last few verses here, starting in verse 8, he says, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. By trusting Jesus Christ, they had come to know God. Their days of spiritual ignorance were supposed to be in their past. Knowing God through Christ, that is the very essence of eternal life. People always ask a lot of questions. What is eternal life going to be like? Well, you have it now, believer, and the very essence of it is knowing God. John 17, 3, Jesus said to the Father, he said this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, God had brought regeneration, enlightenment, a new direction in life. From man's perspective, they had come to know God. And to make sure that people didn't think that they could know God by their own efforts, he clarifies and says, or rather, are known by God, that salvation 
from God's perspective. Scripture presents it both ways, man's perspective and God's perspective. But certainly the words of 1 John 4.19 ring true, don't they? We love him because he first loved us. You see, in Galatians 4, Paul was absolutely mystified. He was amazed that they had turned back. How could they turn back to being a slave all over again because they had been freed? Jews going back to the law. Or even Gentiles liberated from pagan religion and placing themselves underneath the Mosaic law. None of it is what Christ himself intended. So why had they started to observe the Jewish Sabbaths, the feasts, the celebrations, which were never intended for the church? Colossians 2 teaches us that they were only a shadow intended to point us to Jesus Christ. Christ is the substance of our faith. Anytime we see Hebrew Christians in the Word of God celebrating these days, it was done because it was their culture, their heritage as a Hebrew people. It was never done to gain acceptance from God. But confusion reigns today when Gentiles in the church start taking up the feasts and the celebrations of Israel. Be careful heading down that road. You know, there's a hard message in Galatians 4 if you take the time to study it. It basically is saying, put on your big boy pants. Put on your big boy pants and live like it. Stop behaving like children. Stop just acting like little kids and start behaving like adults. Put away those childish rules. Don't turn to a list of rules. See, Paul was afraid that after all his work, his new converts were going back to their old way of living. Paul didn't want them to abandon the principles of grace. He's saying, how is this progress? You become enslaved again. They thought they were doing so good because they'd quit their pagan religions and started following after the Jewish feasts. Acts 14 shows us that before Paul got there, they worshiped Zeus and Hermes, not even real gods, idols made out of rock and wood. These were weak and beggarly elements, Paul says, weak because they could not bring life, weak because they could not bring about spiritual growth, beggarly because they could not bring about an eternal inheritance with God. But they were still trying to earn God's favor by their own efforts. They had forgotten that God already treats them like adult sons and heirs. They had forgotten their position, their identity in Christ. It's like they were going back to kindergarten. Anything, let me say it like this, anything that you put your trust in apart from the living God is weak and it will fail you. I've had Christians ask me this over the years. Why didn't he just make it more simple? Why isn't the Bible so much more simple for us? Well, you know, God could have done that. If he wanted to, he could have just put two books in the New Testament, one with a whole bunch of rules for the church. And then a second one, he could have made a basic list of doctrines for the church that everybody should believe in. And he could have done away once and for all with everything that the church has wrestled with for the last 2,000 years. Think of how much time that could have saved. But then we would be like little children. Then we would be like little children, not growing in our understanding and our faith because he wants us to grow up and reach maturity. He arranged things purposely how they are so that we have to dig a little deeper and go beyond the childish basics of the faith. Shocking thought. God wants you to think. God wants you to think. He wants you to get up and grow in his grace. God's not trying to grow up a little family of children. He's trying to grow a family of adults. 
And Paul was telling them he had labored to the point of exhaustion to establish churches that were based on God's grace. So why would they waste that? Paul was not afraid of their eternal destiny, but he was afraid that this legalistic road that they were on would stunt them in their faith. These Galatian believers had backslidden so far in their faith. Paul was afraid he was going to have to start all over, teaching them all over again how to live a life that is based on God's grace. A reporter working for the Chicago Tribune wrote an article about the Delgado family. There was the grandmother named Perfecta. I love that name, Perfecta. And she had two granddaughters living with her, Jenny, age 13, and her sister Lydia, age 11. They lived on the west side of Chicago in a two-room apartment with bare walls, no furniture, no rugs, nothing but a kitchen table. And in the cupboards, all they had was a handful of rice. The girls only had one short-sleeved dress apiece, plus a thin gray sweater that they had to share. So as they walked to school a half mile on the cold days, when they had to walk to school, the girls, one of them would start out with the sweater, and then halfway to school, they would switch, and the other girl would actually take the sweater the rest of the way. That was all they had. Well, Perfecta, she wanted more for her granddaughters, and she would have been one that would have gladly have, have gotten up and worked, but she was crippled with severe arthritis, and she was old. She, her age made it impossible. Now, this article in the Chicago Tribune, it detailed their poverty. And a few days later, this reporter went to visit the Delgados again because this article had touched the hearts of so many people who had read about them. And the people of Chicago had responded with amazing generosity. There was furniture, there was appliances, there was rugs, dozens of coats, scarves, gloves. The girls wouldn't have to share a sweater anymore. There was cartons and cartons of boxes of food everywhere. They had so much food that the cupboards and the closets wouldn't even contain it all. The generosity of the people of Chicago was amazing. See, when the reporter got there, he found Perfecta, and he found the granddaughters boxing it up and preparing to give most of it away. He asked immediately what they were doing. He wanted to know why they were giving most of this stuff away, and Perfecta responded, our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. Then he asked Perfecta what she thought about the generosity that had been shown to them as a family. And she said, this is wonderful. We did nothing to deserve this. It's all a gift from God, but it's not his greatest gift because his greatest gift to us is Jesus Christ. Well, this reporter left speechless as he drove back to the office. He began to reflect on a few things. His first point was that he had plenty. He had plenty. But all this stuff, and hear me, church, because this is a plague in the modern church, and I'm tired of it. All the stuff he had accumulated left him stressed, living with anxiety. But by contrast, the Delgado family, even though they were living in poverty, they were living in peace. Second, this reporter had to admit he had everything he wanted, and yet he still wanted more, more stuff. But the Delgados had nothing, and yet they were generous. And third, even though he had so much more than them, somehow in his heart he still longed 
he still longed for what they had. The journalist and self-proclaimed atheist was Lee Strobel. And this encounter with the Delgados, it shook his unbelief to the core, and eventually he accepted the call of Christ. His most famous book you've probably heard of, The Case for Christ, because Lee was confronted by a family who had the peace that Jesus Christ promised his people. John 14, 27, it's one of my all-time favorite verses. Let's read it. It says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Meaning stop chasing the world, Christian, because you're never going to get his peace. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I think one of the reasons that legalism comes about is because men are exactly that, afraid. Afraid of the freedom of grace. Afraid of the liberty that is found in Jesus Christ. And afraid of growing up and taking on an adult relationship with God knowing that we have to trust God instead of ourselves. So they try harder on their own, and they end up missing something. They end up missing his peace. Sometimes it's for salvation, sometimes for their daily walk in Christ. And I think the difference between Lee and the Delgados is that this family knew that no matter what their circumstances were, God was there for them. You know, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Isaiah declared, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you remember what Emmanuel means? Matthew 1.23 tells us very clearly. It says they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, right? God was declaring that he was going to step out of heaven, come down in order to be here with us. And do you remember when we were in the book of Hebrews together, church, the promise of Hebrews 13, 5, that Christ had said he would never leave us nor forsake us. That's where we get our peace. That is where our peace comes from. Our peace comes from the fact that we don't have to face this life alone. Because of Jesus Christ, we belong to God. That's where our peace lies. As Paul said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So learn, learn to grow up, learn to live in his grace, learn to live in the freedom that comes with maturity in Christ, learn to live with that trust day by day in him and may his peace continue to guard your hearts and minds until the day of his return. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.